0: The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription, in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, the Spectator's Executive Editor.
2: And I'm William Moore, the Spectator's Features Editor.
1: On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the police's renewed attempt to tackle low-level crime. We'll hear about the drone strikes on Moscow. And we'll ask whether it's ever right to cut off your own family.
2: First up, in her cover article for the magazine this week, Our political editor, Katie Balls, takes a look at the bottom-up reform that's happening in police forces across the country and asks whether tough policing is making a comeback. Katie joins me now with Kate Green, Greater Manchester's Deputy Mayor for Policing and Crime and former Labour MP. Katie, you write in your piece this week about, as you call them, the super cops – Could you start by explaining for our listeners who are these super cops and how are they changing the nature of policing?
3: So in a few weeks time, all police forces are going to receive instructions to investigate every crime. Now, I think lots of people listening to this will think, well, weren't they doing that already? It's not a particularly novel concept, but it is a change in tack. Quite a few forces, including the Metropolitan Police, have effectively stopped investigating many low-level crimes in recent years, often citing austerity, stretched resources, and therefore have prioritised the the more serious offences. Now... The shift in policy has not come from a Westminster think tank. It's not even particularly an idea that's been born in a Whitehall department. Instead, it's what uh, has been happening in Greater Manchester by the Chief Constable Steve Watson. And he was appointed a few years ago when the force was in special measures. In 18 months' time, it was moved out of it. And it's one of a series of practices that we're now uh, seeing by... Chief constables in different regions, which the Home Office are paying specific attention and becoming national policy. So I mentioned a few in the piece, but ultimately, I think it's fair to say it hasn't been a a golden era for policing in recent years. But what the piece is looking at is how. There's the beginnings, at least, of a back-to-basics approach, but the lessons are being learnt by those uh, forces that are performing above the average. But many of those forces have come up with these innovations from a place where they were in a difficult place, such as special measures, and it's what they've had to do to try and bring themselves out of them. Kate, Kate you mentioned just
2: now, and, and also in the piece, that Greater Manchester's Chief Constable, Steve Watson, is one of these figures who have taken the force from being in special measures to some success where do you think it has gone right?
4: Well do you know I think Katie is quite right when she says that the public expect the basics of the police turning up when a crime is reported investigating it where there are leads to follow bringing suspects to justice and that's exactly what Steve Watson and Greater Manchester Police have been focusing on we knew what the public cared about we had public surveys to tell us that they wanted burglary antisocial behavior um, these sorts of crimes to be tackled by the police, and they wanted a strong neighbourhood policing presence. That's what Steve Watson has been concentrating on. Uh, and as you say, already it's really bearing fruit. We've seen the police move out of special measures within 18 months. That's a really rapid turnaround. Uh, we're seeing the number of arrests uh, for burglaries going up. And we're now recording fewer burglaries because burglaries are either deterred or potentially they're locked up and in prison.
2: And uh, Katie, so so Watson is an appointment made by Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham, as you say in your piece. So is it a little bit unusual that he's become a sort of darling of the Tory Party? He's often referred to, as as you do say in your piece, as the the anti woke chief constable, telling police to sort of get off Twitter and, and back on the streets. So is is it somewhat surprising that he's become this Tory figure, even though he's a Labour appointment?
3: Well. I think ultimately Andy Burnham is the Metro Mayor, so therefore he is in charge of this. And he was also the Metro Mayor when the force was in special measures, which was the reason they brought Steve Watson in. When I spoke to Andy Burnham for the piece, he talked about one of the early conversations he had with Steve Watson, in which he asked him, do you, uh, you know, support the broken windows theory? So that is the approach that comes from New York. And it is ultimately a zero tolerance. So even low level crimes must be investigated, if you're going to have that deterrent effect. And there are parts of Labour that are actually quite anti the broken windows theory, because they will say it, Um, led to lots of issues in New York yes it brought crime down but at what cost in terms of the number of convictions but therefore I think there is at least uh, when Andy Burnham talks about that theory he is in line with I think many in the Tory party on it I cannot speak on this podcast for where the rest of the Labour party is but therefore I think you are seeing at least a commonality in, in terms of what a Labour mayor sees and what the Home Office see, which is this return to back-to-basics policing focusing on this and also, ultimately, this view that all all crime is crime, effectively. Um, so I think there is a similarity there. Even in the piece, when I spoke to Andy Burnham, he was saying, you know, credit to the government for taking some of these ideas which work in the regions which feeds into devolution of course and applying them nationally though I think it's worth pointing out that I know <laughs> Kate may have thoughts on this but I don't think we can take Andy Burnham as a spokesperson for the leader's office because of course Keir Starmer has a strained relationship with his various mayors if you look at Sadiq Khan comments about Andy Burnham I think at one point Andy Burnham said you know effectively about the leader's office just leave me alone because there are all these briefings coming out. But you definitely, I think there is um, a shared sense when it comes to Greater Manchester Mayor and some of the things the government's currently looking at.
2: So, Kate, Kate you mentioned there this that, that Annie Burnham uh, speaks positively about the idea that the government might take some of these regional approaches, these regional ideas, and roll them out nationally. Is another way of looking at it that, that uh, the Tories are, are taking credit for this kind of policing? Whereas actually it's come from a more local starting point.
4: I think it's come from a recognition from Andy's point of view and from mine of what's important to local people here in Greater Manchester, but that's probably not different from what's important to people up and down the country and what they want the police to be doing, what sort of community they want to live in. And, you know, we haven't set about this in Greater Manchester to get the political credit fundamentally. We set about it because... We want people who live and work here, who come here to visit, to enjoy the wonderful offer that we've got here in Greater Manchester, to feel safe, to feel welcome, to feel they'll be treated respectfully and to know that they can trust the police if they've got a problem. I don't think this really is a, a divisive political issue. I doubt if you can put a sheet of paper between Andy's position, the Labour front edge position, um, as you say, Katie, where the government seem to be on some of this stuff. I think we all know across the political spectrum what the public wants is for the police to be tackling anti-social behaviour and crime, and that's what we're doing in Greater Manchester.
2: Katie, there's something else that you, you mentioned in your piece that came back from the Humberside police force, which is to redress the balance between mental health call-outs and more traditional policing. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that, because that's another idea, isn't it, that, that started on a sort of regional force that now is going to be introduced to the Met, London Met and beyond.
3: Yes, yeah, so if you look at the Humberside Police, again, quite similar to the Steve Watson case. This was a force that was, uh, you know, seemed to be largely failing. Lee Freeman, the chief Constable, who's just about to leave his role, ultimately asked his staff, perhaps desperation is too strong a word, but a failing force and said, what are the things we can do to change things quickly in terms of improvement? And when I spoke to him, one of the things he said that came back, um, this was, you know, about five years ago, his force was saying, well, the public are saying, why aren't you investigating crime? But effectively, we're unable to do that because we're spending all this time on these mental health call outs. So you had a situation whereby the police were obligated, as has been the case um, for many in the, in the country if there was uh, someone who was struggling from mental health having a mental health breakdown to go with them to the hospital and then can actually leave until the response was to pass to someone else and therefore he started to think how can we free up police officers time making the case that you know if you, uh, you know twisted your ankle in the street, you don't go into a police van. So it's not so much saying we don't care about mental health problems, but actually are the police and the best the best place figure to be dealing with a mental health crisis. And this isn't about completely ending police looking into mental health call outs. It's still the case in the Humberside that they attend one and four, but trying to pass it on to other services. And now that policy is being rolled out nationally. But it made a big difference to them in terms of being able to reprioritize police time on the things I think that most voters believe, as Kate was saying, the police should be focusing on, which is crime. And therefore, it's now being rolled out to the Metropolitan Police next month and then later to nationally. And they expect it to save about, I think, a million hours of police time. Now... Since it's been, I suppose, caught on and been written about in the national press, there has been some criticism saying, is this dangerous to mentally ill people, who at that point is going to, you know, look after them? And... When I put that to Freeman, he said to me, what's really fascinating is reading some of the national headlines and narrative. Um, People saying this is really worrying, the police can't just slip away. He said, well, we've been doing this for three years and the only pushback was initially from other agencies that realised, of course, that means deadlines, sharing the burden, but nothing from the community. So I think it's an interesting question when it comes to some of these practices from the inverted commas super cops as to, yes, they're working in local areas. How does the rollout go? Because one of the things Freeman did was have a very, um, you know, relaxed deadline almost to make sure that other services are prepared to step in. Now, will the Met, and I think, you know, when we're talking about police in this piece, we're not saying all police forces are super. And the Met have been particularly troubled. So do they have it in place so it is a a smooth transition? If they don't, I think that's the point where these policies could start to become problematic.
2: Mm. Speaking of problematic policies, Kate. Uh, stop and search is obviously an extremely politically contentious policy. Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, uh, regarded it as, as discriminatory. And Katie mentions in her piece that in, in Greater Manchester, it's it's trebled after, over the past two years. Um, do you agree with any of the criticism that it disproportionately targets any group? Or do you think that actually stop and search is good for public safety? And, and it's right that it has it has trebled in, in Greater Manchester.
4: Clearly, we were underperforming in Greater Manchester across all of the basics of policing. That's how we ended up in special measures. And so it's not at all surprising that as we start to get policing back on the right footing, stop and search arrests and so on are increasing, increasing quite substantially, as you say. And it's also encouraging, I guess, that that increase in stop and search is being matched with an increase in positive outcomes, you know, things are being banged that lead to crimes being identified, charges being laid and so on. Also, that we're not seeing an increase in the level of complaints, even although the, the volume is rising. However, it is really important that stop and search is carried out appropriately and proportionately. And I've certainly been looking really carefully at our figures recently, because there's no doubt some uh, communities, some ethnic groups, certainly are more subject to stop and search, disproportionate to their representation overall in the community. And and I'm asking questions of Greater Manchester Police about why that is happening and how we can be confident that stop and search is always being carried out fairly and without discrimination. I'm also particularly anxious about stop and search of children and young people. Numbers are low, but we've got to be really sure that those children and young people are being stopped and searched only when it's appropriate that we recognise but young people often get drawn into activities that you grow out of, don't you? And so policing, their their behavior is is a very different challenge. So I'm, that's why I'm receiving a lot of data. I'm really drilling in very deeply right now to how Greater Manchester's rise in stopping search is playing out in practice. It's an important tool for the police. It has to be used proportionately and appropriately.
2: And why, in your opinion, has there not been a proportionate increase in complaints? proportionate to the the, the the trebling of stop and search. Is it is it being approached differently as a tactic?
4: The proportion, statement was saying, what we're not seeing is an overall increase in the number of complaints. But what I do ask is, are volumes of complaints a reflection of the fact that people are very comfortable with the way the policy is being carried out? And that may very well be the case, and I hope it is. Or might it in some cases be a reluctance to complain, a nervousness about complaining, a belief that your complaint will be taken seriously. And that goes to the wider point, really, doesn't it, about all of our communities having confidence in policing. And, and that's something we spend a lot of time discussing here in Greater Manchester, and I know police forces will be across the country.
2: Katie, you mentioned just now that the Metropolitan Police has come under quite a lot of criticism for performance in recent years. To what extent do you think a lot of these policies that are working regionally can be replicated elsewhere in the country or on a national level? Or do you think that in some of these cases, they, they they work better regionally than they might across the entire country?
3: So I think that is the big test, which is effectively for this new approach, I think it is, say it's a back to basics approach. The theory of deterrence ultimately rests on three things. So certainty, that's a punishment will be imposed. Celerity, which is that it will be imposed swiftly. And then severity. So is the is length and the type of punishment enough to then put others off. And there's only so much, really, the Tories can do in the sense that you look at the coming King speech, I think we're expecting at least two bills about tougher sentencing and, and focused on crime. But the first two are, are much more in the hands of police. And therefore, the, the question is, is strong leadership enough – The Home Office and figures in government clearly have the chief constables that they are paying the most attention to and lots of that is data-driven. But when you speak to these figures, they talk about the importance of leadership. It's something Andy Burnham talked about. It's something ministers and government talk about. And therefore, in some of these forces that are struggling, there are still, you know, several and special measures. Are they going to have the will, the policies to actually push out the instructions they're, they're given? And if not, are we going to see a change of chief constables? How are they going to bring it about? Because, regionally you you do see success from the Steve Watson approach but there is a reason lots of these police forces stopped doing that. I mean, if you look at the Steve Watson's predecessor in Greater Manchester, one of the things he had was just the charter, which um Steve Watson very swiftly ditched, which was effectively reminding people living in Greater Manchester that they had lots of responsibility themselves to protect themselves because because the police are very busy and quite stretched. Now Steve Watson came in and said that is utter tosh and axed it. But therefore, you know. Is the change something that's going to be welcomed by all policemen? Probably not. And how do you make it operationally so? And I think that's a test of whether this is really going to lead to a situation from whereby you have a few super cops, highly performing forces, and a national picture which is much improved. Because one of the strange things when I was writing this piece is if you look at just the national figures – there's quite a good story to tell technically on crime, which is the fact that crime has been falling since 2010, according to ONS figures. It's halved. You had a recent police report saying, arguably, people in England and Wales have never been safer. The streets have never been safer. Why, why don't people feel that way then? Well, are this they, is Are the they, thing. Distra- are they right. wrong? Or- so... But I think it's partly because effectively lots of people think think certain crimes have been decriminalised. So if you look at one of the things I mentioned in the piece, if you look in YouGov polling, a majority of voters just think things won't be investigated, such as getting your phone snatched, getting your bike stolen. And they're right. If you look at the bike prosecution figures, I think 90% of bike thefts go unprosecuted. You know, 1 in 50 lead to prosecution. And if you look even at antisocial behaviour officially, the number of antisocial behaviour incidents have been falling since 2012. But in terms of people reporting their own experience of it, that has gone up. And that's why I think when you go back to the the policy we began talking about in this podcast, which is investigating every crime, I think it's only when the petty crime starts to be seen as something that the police actually respond to, rather than something that has just effectively been decriminalised, that people really feel that they are safer. Katie and Kate, thank you very much.
1: Next. The war has finally come to Moscow, and recently a number of drone strikes have hit targets in the Russian capital. Though Ukraine hasn't explicitly taken responsibility, in the magazine this week, Owen Matthews writes that it's all part of a form of psychological warfare. Owen is the author of Overreach, the inside story of Putin and Russia's war against Ukraine, and he joins us now. Owen, as you say in the magazine, war has finally reached Russia, can you tell us a bit about these drone strikes that have been happening
0: recently? Well, uh, they began on May 5th with uh, a small um, couple of drones hitting the Kremlin. And uh, in June and July, we saw a few more isolated strikes. But it seems that now Ukraine, and of course, we presume it's Ukraine. Ukrainian leaders have broadly hinted that it's them. It can be no one else. Ukrainian drones have been hitting, uh, or at least attempting to hit Moscow on a pretty much nightly basis. So what we're seeing is like a sort of clear escalation of Ukraine. Capabilities. No fatalities in Moscow so far, but they've hit a series of uh, very symbolic targets. Uh, a few weeks ago, there was a strike just right by the Ministry of Defense. Over the last couple of days, there have been strikes on Moscow City, which is the, the business center, and particularly a, a building in, the, in uh, Moscow City, which houses the communications ministry. So uh, clearly, the drones that are getting through are actually apparently striking exactly the targets they were intended to strike, despite Russian official denials that the damage has all been done from drones that have been shot down. And so
2: since no one has died from these strikes, is that deliberate strategy uh, on the part of Ukraine? Is it more about psychological warfare than it is uh, anything else?
0: I think certainly it's psychological warfare. I think uh, they also uh, want to differentiate themselves from Russians insofar as they... Don't they wish not to strike civilian buildings and just stick to government installations and military and symbolic government buildings. Uh, how long that that's going to be um, sustained is not clear because as we know, lots of these drones um, have been shot down we suddenly know from the Ukrainian side that they've been hitting over 90% of the the Iranian-made Shahid drones that are coming in to Kiev and other cities in Ukraine. So uh, clearly, if the Ukrainians can uh, shoot down drones, I think the Russians can do so too. The Russians claim to have downed nine drones heading for Moscow over the skies of Kursk province, so pretty early in their flight path. So the Ukrainians, I think, are going to run into the same problem that the Russians have had is that they can launch they can produce and launch dozens or even hundreds of these drones, but the defending side is getting better and better at knocking them out.
1: And how is it starting to affect the lives of sort of ordinary Muscovites? I mean you you mentioned a few fascinating examples in your piece. Can you can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Well, suddenly drone strikes are becoming the new normal. The, uh, most of the Muscovite friends and acquaintances and contacts that I've spoken to and uh, texted over the last few days uh, seem uh, very far from panicked. They are taking it in, the, in their stride. The big question is really a political one, is at what point does striking the Russian homeland striking Moscow, is that going to strengthen or weaken Putin's war effort? And we know that on the one hand, obviously, capital Moscow has been very much insulated from the effects of the war so far. So in that sense, uh, Muscovites are waking up to the fact that this war is a reality, that actually it can affect their lives and actually even possibly take their lives when they're sleeping in their beds in moscow but at the same time we've seen not just from the experience of Kiev and other cities, but also historically, you know, London was not terrorized. It was not broken by the Blitz. Uh, Tokyo and the Japanese population were not broken by very extensive um, firebombing that claimed hundreds of thousands of lives. So the idea that uh, a bombing campaign can sort of break a people's will, uh, I think historically has not really been justified. I think that's, uh, that's not necessarily the point of the... Um, of the Ukrainian side. The point is that they want to bring the war home to the city in which it was born, i.e. Moscow, and actually make a point that they are able, they, the Ukrainians, are able to strike back in the same way that they have been struck by Russian missiles and drones over the last year and a half.
2: And uh, the, the drones, as you say in your piece, are, are Ukrainian Made uh, in order to, I suppose, avoid uh, any concerns that that NATO weaponry could be involved. Even if uh, there's no NATO drones being used in these attacks, is there a risk of escalation regardless?
0: Well, this is the whole debate um, that's been continuing since the beginning of the war: is uh, the debate about provoking Russia and the Russian red lines. So, not provoking Russia was seen as a reason at the beginning of the war not to send. Rocket artillery it now is being cited as a reason not to send long-range rocket artillery, known as attackants. Uh, it's being cited as an as as a reason not to send F-16s. Uh, it was cited at the beginning of the war as a reason not to send heavy armor. So, uh, nonetheless, we've seen suddenly with the supply of tanks, with the, s- the supply of short-range rocket artillery, that those supposed red lines have sort of disappeared that uh, NATO has supplied XYZ weapon, and the Russians have just continued. There's been no response. But nonetheless, there does remain a serious concern, particularly among the Americans, that a direct confrontation between the United States and Russia would be catast- catastrophic, disastrous, and lead to World War III, and they're being, uh, they've, they've gone to some lengths to avoid that to the enormous frustration and anger or sometimes public anger of the ukrainians who have of course been clamoring for more and more powerful weaponry uh, which they say they need to win the war but nonetheless you can see that there is still a clear taboo in place insofar as so far the ukrainians do not officially claim any of these attacks inside russia they're still surprisingly coy about it they're certainly less coy than they were uh, a few months ago, but still there remains an issue about claiming publicly claiming attacks inside Russia, which, if you think about it is not not is, is somewhat illogical on in Ukrainian terms, but it makes sense in terms of Ukraine trying to appease and calm down uh, its NATO backers because they are very nervous that if NATO weaponry, for instance, is used in attacking Russia, that can be taken as a casus belly. The big debate is now. How seriously we should take those Russian red lines, you know, what will Russia actually really do if, for instance, the Crimean bridge were attacked by a Western-supplied, uh, attackum missile, for instance? I mean, you know, would Russia launch a nuke, as uh, the former president uh, and prime minister, Dmitry Medvedev, so often threatens to do? We don't know, but uh, that—that's uh, that, thats that's the reason why Ukrainians so far have used only Ukrainian-made weaponry to strike. Moscow.
1: And finally, can you just tell us a bit about what Putin's response has been to all this? You finish your piece on a fairly concerning note. You suggest that he might even be planning attacks on his own citizens. Can you you tell us a bit about that theory?
0: Well, so far, it's, it's speculation, of course. But we do know one thing is that Putin came to power back in 1999. He was the director of the FSB, then became prime minister. And then he launched the war in chechnya the second chechen war why because there was a series of as yet unexplained bombing attacks against apartment buildings in moscow two in moscow uh, several in south russia which left over 300 russian civilian dead there's some pretty compelling evidence that that was not chechen terrorists as putin claimed that it was actually the fsb that did those bombings it's the original sin of the putin regime but they did a fantastic job of terrorizing the population And creating this groundswell of popular support for uh, Putin's war on the back of which he rode to power and was anointed as Boris Yeltsin's successor on January 1st, 2000. So the point is that the FSB has got form on attacking Russian civilians for political ends. I don't want to be a Cassandra and and predict that that's going to happen, but I just wanted to point out that actually the FSB has done that. And it's not inconceivable there could be a situation where the war is going very badly, that support for the war is flagging, that actually an outrage against Russian civilians inside Russia that can be pinned on Ukrainian drones or Ukraine uh, might be something that they would need to cook up But again, that's entirely speculative, but grounded in history.
2: Owen, thank you very much for joining us. And finally, is it ever right to cut off your parents? In her Spectator column this week, Mary Wakefield looks at the rise of estrangement. Is this a sign that the fundamentals of family life have moved on from duty or unconditional love to a more transactional approach? Mary joins us now, along with Becca Bland, founder and CEO of the organisation Stand Alone, which helps to support people estranged from their families. Mary, you start off your column this week by writing about a worrying trend you noticed on TikTok. Perhaps that's no surprise on TikTok. I wondered if you could start by saying something about what you saw and why it worried you.
5: Well, the TikTok trend, as you say, could be anything. It's just that there's been billions of views for... Videos on toxic parents and people sharing their stories about toxic parents. And, you know, really quite several billion views. But what I found worrying about it was um, in the comments underneath the TikTok videos, this push to tell the people making the videos that they should leave their parents, that the family was obviously toxic and bad for them. And I found that terrifying, really. Becca, I wondered if you could start first by explaining what the work of Standalone
6: is. So Standalone is a non-for-profit or charity. We work with people who are estranged in their families of all ages. We do a huge amount of lobbying campaigning with government to make sure that people that don't have family support are adequately represented. You know, there's a lot of really important reasons why people might not have family relationships and why they may not have those contact and closeness that is typified in family relationships. And I suppose we are a home for those people to help them understand how they can progress through life we also run support groups online and I think previously in the past we've run them in person in six places in the country so it can be quite an isolating experience not to have contact with your family so I think that um, these places um, and the support groups are a home for people to talk about that and share experience in a non-stigmatized way
1: and is is part of the work
6: ever trying to encourage people to regain contact with their family Mm. So I think we take a very non-judgmental stance. I think we allow people to decide what's best for them. So the charity itself isn't guiding people towards contact and reconnecting unless they feel it's really right for them. And equally, it's not guiding them towards maintaining the estrangement if it's not right for them either. So I think we fully believe that people should have their own agency over how they choose to yeah, maintain their family relationships.
5: Becca, did, um, did you have you read this book um, by Carl Piller, The Fault Lines? In it, he he seems to have done a lot of research in America, which suggests that the people who have become mm-hmm. estranged from their families are all find it extremely sad. I mean, not all of them. There's obviously lots of cases in which families are criminally abusive, and and shouldn't be got in touch with. But there's this deep sadness and need for reconciliation in many cases. Do do you find that as well here?
6: So, yeah, I think the one thing that is guaranteed in life is change. And I do think that culture is changing. And I think what Carl reflects in his book, and I know Carl very well, is that, yeah, that there's a trend towards people pursuing healthy relationships. Whereas in the past, I don't think that was as prioritised. So I do think sociologically we are experiencing a change. And capitalism does, as you acknowledge in your piece, predicate that we need individualism that we need to be super healthy to thrive to survive so I feel that a lot of people are making these choices because they feel it's genuinely what's best for their lives and for many what's best for their families particularly if they have yeah survived abuse.
5: Do you mean sorry the choices you're talking about is that the choice to step away from your family or the choice to reconcile?
6: Yeah I think also the choice to pursue healthy relationships and to want to in some way change their families and work on them like I think something that perhaps is in contrary to your piece that I notice is that many people will have actually really tried hard to work on their family relationships and invite people into therapy or ask them to change and yeah but unfortunately people aren't always present in the process with them yeah they aren't willing to do any work and that can be a really sad process in whatever role you're in, you know, like it could be a child, it could be a sibling, it
5: could be a parent. I've seen it on all sides that people just don't want to show up and, you know, work on the relationship. But that's why I think the TikTok trend is so awful because there's all these people going through the extremely hard work of coming to terms with someone who's been unpleasant to them, being toxic for them, and yet there's other people, you know, very casually suggesting that they're just going to cut off their parents for for effectively criticising them about something.
6: Yeah, I think we have to be a bit careful about how much we take TikTok as the barometer of how family estrangement is rising as well. Like ultimately, I feel that, you know, I mean, I checked in yesterday with my research colleagues at University of Cambridge and they told me, you know, and I've seen myself in the research. There isn't any actual formal research to say that this is on the rise. Yeah. But I do think that, you know, the dialogue is increasing. People are talking about their family relationships more, whereas in the past, perhaps they didn't. So that might seem why it's on the rise. And perhaps therapists see it more, perhaps professionals see it more, So because people are talking about it. And I think the health of our family relationships is a dialogue we absolutely should have.
5: Well, I think, you know, Carl says that um, he thinks people are, children are sort of saying, well, I don't have to put up with this anymore. But they might make a decision which they could come later to regret because your feelings change as you get older. Yeah I mean that's why I think we as a charity and myself as a
6: you know as a professional have always guided people towards doing these things in a way that's mediated and so that if you you know if you have a real issue in your family that you know you really feel the relationship you know is very dysfunctional and you can't speak about that with someone then to consult a you know a therapist or a counsellor who can help you to have more of a voice so I feel that if these things are done in the right way and you give people a process to try and help change and bring something new to the relationship, then it, you know, but sometimes you get to the end of the road and, you know, much like divorce or much like personal relationships, you might not be able to salvage it. Mm. And yeah, I think that is a very sad place. But, you know, I do feel that there's the place where we should absolutely give people a chance to change and and hope that they can until we know for definite they can't.
2: Well, Mary, do you think, um, I mean, there's, I suppose there's always been tensions between generations, but do you think that if estrangement really is on the rise, as your Carl Pilmas says it is, do you think that might reflect a, a shift in the way people see family or think about, or think yeah, I about mean, family?
5: Certainly, you know, I don't know what Becker thinks, but there's a more casual talk about how important the tie of biological family is, as we've moved away from a collective identity towards an individual identity, um, and you see all over the place um, research saying, um, you know, um, mothers aren't as important as all that, family isn't all that, you can make your own tribe. So the the rhetoric is about finding your tribe, finding your own made family. And And I think that creates a sort of gravitational pull that doesn't acknowledge how important belonging biologically is.
6: Yeah, i just love to come in there and say that I feel that every generation changes family. If we had family stayed the same, then, you know, children would still be going to work in workhouses. So I feel that family changes over the generations, over time, over centuries. And I do genuinely feel that what people are trying to do um, in terms of perhaps not having close relationships that feel abusive or toxic is trying to help their families in the future to have a different culture um, It depends on your
5: definition of abuse If they though, can't doesn't
6: reconcile it? that and if they can't ultimately help their parents see that perhaps sometimes there are behaviours that have transmitted generationally that are very dysfunctional, that perhaps are accepted many years ago, perhaps 10, 20 years ago they were accepted but now they're perhaps illegal you know, let's think about physical punishment think about shaming, ostracising emotional abuse all of these things are now illegal in many Western countries, but where they're still passed down as parenting techniques, people need to understand the psychological impact of those on a human. And, you know, for many, it's not very good. It's very harmful. So I think we need to be careful about saying that the new generation is wrong.
5: I think that what they're trying to do is evolve family, and change always feels crunchy. Change is hard and change is wrong if it's a move to think a biological family is a casual thing or that the love, unconditional love parents have for a child is a casual thing. No amount of people you find, you know, friends in in away from your family can replicate that unconditional love. I mean, I think that's just a very different view in different generations. I think the past
6: generations really thought about duty and that was something that whatever the behaviour that happened in their families, they would accept it and there was a duty towards that relationship. Whereas, whether we like it or not, I just don't think this generation feels the same. And I can completely understand why that feels difficult and confronting because that change is confronting. And in that sense, then I understand why people may be really angry about this. Like there's a lot of anger about it. But it was a really similar around other sociological changes in family, such as divorce back in you know the 70s that was really fought against whereas now it's very socially accepted and understood as a tool to help us yeah so i wonder if family estrangement you know many experts say this is the same place that they ultimately it's a very necessary tool to get away from incredibly abusive behavior for many and
5: it's something that is becoming more accepted obviously no one wants kids to stay with abusive parents but then that's the problem of how you define abuse if you just say it- It's abusive to be critical, then obviously you don't want kids to leave abusive parents. But I'm just asking out of curiosity is is your idea of the future an idea where all biological families feel less tied together and kids should feel more free to leave their biological families and form chosen families? I mean, look, I really hope it's healthy. I want all families to be healthy
6: and have healthy relationships you know, so I hope that means that more families work on these relationships rather than, yeah, just assume that there's something that can and will happen for people like romantic relationships. You know, when people bought in divorce, it put a great impetus on working on marriages in a very different way. And I really hope that this is the same for family, that the future is people have better, more healthy family ties. And if possible, yes, closer, but in a way that it serves everybody in a very authentic way to help people you know succeed in life and that some of the behaviors of the past in families such as ostracizing shaming this idea of power dynamics isn't so prevalent I feel that 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 is where it could be very helpful that we have this idea that families aren't necessarily a given they're not a duty so we have to work on them.
1: Mary and Becca I think we'll have to leave it there thank you very much for joining us and that's everything this week. As ever, you can pick up the magazine to read everything we've talked about and much more. I'm Laura Prendergast.
2: And I'm William Moore, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.